This is the Tribune Audio Network. For decades, musicians, drug dealers, and groupies surrounded the Rolling Stones. Bill German is none of those, and yet somehow spent much of his life hanging out with the band. His view, the front row, backstage, and in their homes. This is the Backstory Podcast. I'm Larry Potash, and on this show, a teenager sets out to chronicle the life of the Rolling Stones, but in the end, he says he got a little too close. So how does an innocent straight-A student from Brooklyn in an Orthodox Jewish religious school chase a rock band around the world? It starts when he's 10 years old. The only bands I knew were the ones that had Saturday morning TV shows. Otherwise, I never heard of you. So, you know, we're talking about the Beatles, who I still love, the Monkees, who I guess I still love, uh, and the Jackson Five, who I guess I still love, actually. But those were the three bands that I knew because they all had, like, cartoons or, you know, TV shows. And then the Stones enter my life, and it's like, oh my God, these guys can beat up the monkeys, you know? They just seem so tough. In 1978, at the age of 16, he starts a newsletter out of his bedroom, a fan magazine, or fanzine, called Beggar's Banquet, a banquet of Stones information even a beggar could afford. After a year, he sets out on a mission to show his fanzine to the band and maybe get an interview. He stakes out a party in Manhattan. Well, Mick comes out first and gets into his own limo. And as he passes me on the sidewalk, he gives off a vibe like, don't come near me. He doesn't say it, but that's the vibe that he gives off. And, uh, and then Keith comes out, and Keith is, you know, completely the opposite, you know, and he's friendly and he's willing to take time and stop and talk, you know. And, um, and then Ron Wood comes out, and he's the one, I was just standing in that, right position where I wind up giving it to him and you can see his hand reaching out for the issue in that photo uh, and Keith in the foreground with his best friend Jack Daniels which he just pilfered that bottle from the party and uh, you know so I hand him the newsletter my latest issue almost like a process server and they get into this limo and the window of the limousine is open for some reason and I peek in and Keith is like elbowing Ron Woodley what the hell is that man and Ron Wood is like, oh, he just gave that to me. It's his magazine. And, um, and that starts everything. And then, like, they know that I exist. And little does he know, a photo of that very moment exists. He finds it decades later during research for his book on the stones. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's me in the background. I have to use this for the cover of my book. And the crazy part is I knew all along that I'd be calling my book Under Their Thumb. And you have Keith sticking out his thumb for whatever reason. He's not hitchhiking. I don't know why he's got his thumb out. So it just worked out perfectly. Under, Under Their Thumb. You know by the title from the very start something about his rock and roll fantasy isn't as glorious as it appears from the front row. Yes, in the 1970s, you could bump into the Rolling Stones walking down the street in New York City. For Bill German, he appreciates their sense of rebellion. It gives him identity and self-esteem. Why do you think they accepted you? I think they realized I didn't want anything from them. I didn't want money. 
I didn't want their drugs. If I was going to hang out at their houses, I wasn't going to steal their silverware. You know, they just knew that I was just an innocent kid that was in it for the music and for the excitement of being around the Rolling Stones. What's it like to sit in a room, you and Keith, and sometimes there's just a couple of guys, sometimes you're hearing songs for the first time before anyone gets to hear them, and just being there for your own private concert, what's that like? It's enormously exciting to see how a song might come together uh, that the rest of the world will hear. I mean, I also heard some that, you know, just kind of fell flat and never went anywhere. But um, it's really exciting to see these guys, you know, uh, ply their craft. I mean, they are some of the best, uh, you know, songwriters and musicians in the world. Ron Wood is always there for the young Bill German. Keith Richards is also very gracious with his time and insight. In time, Bill becomes so close to the band, he goes from wanting to know everything to knowing too much. Describe the challenge of being close to the Stones and reporting on them. I was able to see their flaws and it actually makes me kind of respect their art even more when I see them as flawed characters. And Keith Richards actually told me the first time he ever met Chuck, Chuck Berry, which was here in Chicago, he realized that just because you idolize someone doesn't mean you have to love them as a person. Um, and you know, he gave Chuck as a big example. He also said, you know, James Brown can be an asshole if you really want to know. Mick Jagger, well, like with everyone, Bill says it depends on the day. Mick Jagger invites this teenager to his apartment for an interview. Bill spills juice on Mick Jagger's 16th century Persian rug. But Mick is gracious, and during other meetings, though, Bill says Mick ignores him. Someone like Mick Jagger can be nice on some days and not so nice on other days, but that doesn't mean I still don't respect him and don't consider him one of the greatest lead singers of all time. Um, and then you have Keith Richards and Ron Wood, who actually exceeded my expectations. Uh, in terms of how nice and generous they were with me. How did you get sucked into the middle of the Mick Jagger-Keith Richards conflict that we all remember? How did that end up? Well, their whole rift gets started when Mick decides to go solo. The Stones get this enormous contract with CBS Records, and in a little tiny clause that no one looks at, you know, Keith doesn't see it when he's you know, eating his bourbon and cornflakes in the morning. Um, but Mick sees it, and it says Mick Jagger can do two solo albums under this contract. And no one thought that Mick would actually, you know, undertake that option. But not only did he undertake it, he made it his priority. So before the Stones start recording their first album under this contract, Mick is already looking to go solo. So that's what upset Keith. It is true that Keith was calling Mick Brenda behind his back, and it was just a way for, for Keith to vent, you know. He, he wanted to stab Mick in the eyeballs that summer of 1985. He hated Mick so much. So I think just calling Mick Brendo is like a, a much healthier way to vent. The two are not talking, but Mick Jagger's solo career flops, giving Keith Richards more leverage. At a minimum, it's a working relationship. Is it more than that, or has that been destroyed? they still feel like brothers all these years later. I mean, they met each other when they were like four or five years old and then reconnected as teenagers. And so there is a love-hate thing. And in its own way, it's a beautiful kind of chemistry. A band with beautiful chemistry, sometimes fueled by drinking and drugs. Bill writes that in 1982, pounds of cocaine are smuggled through Europe on the Stones jet in the heads of G.I. Joe dolls. 
Bill never gets caught up in any of that, but from his new perspective of his favorite rock band, he begins to understand. How could it not screw up your perspective when you're on stage and there's 55,000, 60,000 people chanting your name, they know every lyric that you've written, and they just love every move that you make. So it gets a little hard when, you know, you have to wake up the next morning or let's say, you know, a week from now, a month from now, and you're not on tour and you got to walk the dog and, you know, do the dishes or whatever. It really can mess up with your head. And so you kind of need to maintain that high. And so what Keith always used to tell me is the times when he did the most drugs was when they were not on tour. Because when you're on tour, you already have like an adrenaline rush going. It's when you're home in your slippers and pajamas, wondering like, where did all that go? In 1989, the Rolling Stones release Steel Wheels. They cut a deal with a new concert promoter who gives them millions up front, but their fans now have to pay a hefty price tag. In 1989, concert tickets average $18. The Stones charge $30 a ticket. Well, I think they wanted to make this enormous splash when they came back. So let's do the biggest staging. Let's do the biggest merchandising ever. Uh, just everything was so grand on such a grand scale. This is all they know how to do. You know, Keith once said to me, what else am I going to do? Go to DeVry? <laughs> so it was like, um, he, that's all Keith Richards knows how to do. He, he's very willing to admit that. Like, he can only play guitar. So it's in their blood. I do believe Keith would do it for free. He's not, but he would. They've survived disco, and they survived punk rock music, and electronica, and the mid-'80s kind of synth stuff. Um, but they've always adapted, and that's how the Stones have survived for 57 years now. On the seventh hour. What? But the foundation is the blues and Chicago. Chess Records on South Michigan Avenue is known as America's greatest blues label. Artists include Buddy Guy, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, all worshipped by the Rolling Stones. Chicagoan Daryl Jones has been the Stones' bass player since 1993. He says the Stones survived by writing their own songs and bringing the blues to a wider audience. When you hear them talk about Willie Dixon or Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf, you're not hearing it secondhand. You're hearing it from a person who spoke to Muddy Waters and to Willie Dixon. In 1995, during the Voodoo Lounge Tour, the Stones perform a secret show at the Paradiso Club in Amsterdam. Bill is sworn to secrecy. Then he stops by a historic home in Amsterdam, the Anne Frank House the home where a little girl writes her diary while hiding from the Nazis. And then you start to realize like the meaning of a secret and the secret that got you know, kept by that family and what that meant and the impact of it just like hit me. It was the same day I was going to see the Stones and their supposed secret show. But it gave me a perspective. At that point, I'm in my 30s and I'm like, no, this is what a secret really means. You know, life and death kind of secrets. The Stones, you know, if that secret gets out, people will live. Bill German comes to realize some advice from his high school history teacher turns out to be true. So let me tell you something, Billy. And I'm like, what is this old coot going to tell me? He's like 50 years old, this old guy. And he says, the problem with mixing hobby and profession is that, yes, it'll make your job feel like fun. But believe me, in time, your fun will feel like work. 
and he was sort of right. After being pushed, pulled, bullied, and conned by PR people, managers, promoters, and moody rock stars, a teen's rock and roll fantasy is over, even as 70-year-old rock stars keep playing. Thanks for listening to Backstory. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe to our podcast or leave a review. To watch our full coverage of this story and see some that didn't make it to the podcast, visit us online at WGNTV.com slash Backstory. This has been a production of the Tribune Audio Network.